Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, we continue uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Last week we saw the first part of the Hall of Faith here in chapter 11. We saw that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We also saw that faith, the Greek word pistis, is both trust and dependence, or trust or dependence, as well as the body of what we believe. In reality, the things that we trust in, or the trust that we have in God to protect us and to save us. So it's not just our trust, but it's who our trust is in and what we believe about him. That's the idea of what we're talking about here this morning. Faith in action. That faith we have, that pistis that we have in God. The author of the book of Hebrews continues on in chapter 11 and presented some members of the Hebrews Hall of Fame. I'm sorry, Hall of Faith. These people were commended because of their faith, not the actions that they completed, but their faith. They trusted God. Salvation has always been because of our faith given to us by God. The author concluded the first section of chapter 11 by reminding the Hebrews that God was not or is not ashamed to be called the God of these members of the Hall of Faith. God is prepared for those who trust him in an entire new world in which we'll fellowship and worship him for eternity is our future. So let's dig into our text this morning and see what else we can find here. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise, promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Chuck read from James as James talked about Abraham. We read in chapter 22 of Genesis that God told Abraham to take his only son of promise. He wasn't his only son. He had another son, right? Ishmael was born 13 years earlier. But he was the only son of promise to Abraham. And God told uh, Abraham, take this, uh, your son, only son of promise, to the mountains of Moriah, a place where God would show him, and offer up Isaac as a sacrifice to God. Abraham knew that God told him, look, you're going to have you're going to have descendants. They're going to be great. Count the stars if you can. That's how many you're going to have. And God said, look, from through Isaac will these people come. So God tells Abraham to go up to the mountains of Moriah, most likely where the Temple Mount is today, uh, Mount Moriah. The verbiage is a little different in, in, uh, in Genesis. It says the mountains of Moriah rather than Mount Moriah. Um, but that just might be the hills that uh, Jerusalem is built on. 
So God says to Abraham, take Isaac and go up there, slit his throat, execute him, sacrifice him. Now, I don't know about you. I'm having a little trouble with that. I, I know some of you want to kill your own kids. <laughs> but I can honestly say I've never had that emotion. Wanted to hurt them, but never wanted to kill them. I'm sure Abraham had to go through a progression of, of emotions and thoughts. He trusted God, as evidenced by the fact that he took him there. As evidenced by the fact that Genesis records, he told the guys that were helping him, the servants, we're going to go, and the boy and I will be back. So he recognized that something would happen. Even when Isaac asked him, hey, hey dad, where's the animal we're going to sacrifice? Don't worry about it, kid. I'm going to tie you up and kill you. Can you imagine how that conversation went? He's no longer a little kid. Don't think of Isaac on the altar as being, as being a baby. He's a teenager. How old is Abraham? He's old. He's older than 100. He's 113 years old. And here's this little 13-year-old going to take him out. I think I could have beat my dad. If my dad was trying to kill me, I think I could have taken him. Right? You could have done that. If, if your dad was coming at your throat with a knife, I think I could have gotten away. So just imagine that conversation that Adam or that Abraham and, uh, and Isaac had. But Abraham ultimately trusted God and was willing to go through with the sacrifice. He stood there ready to plunge the knife into his throat. I think I have pretty good faith. But I'm fairly confident that that would have been a real challenge for me. Probably something I could not have complied with. Probably. I don't know, maybe. Because faith is given to us by God, maybe God would have given me the faith that I needed to do that. But this is definitely a case where my psychology would have overpowered my theology, for sure. Without a doubt. Abraham received Isaac back, as the author figuratively points out. He went to Mount Moriah knowing he was going to offer Isaac but Isaac came home with him, so it was like God gave him back to him. But by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. We move a few more chapters in Genesis to Genesis 27. We read about Isaac, how he spoke faith about God and the blessings for his sons. He talked in faith about what would come from them, making a great people from them. Isaac went as far as to say that Esau's descendants would serve Jacob's descendants. God gave him the, the advanced knowledge of what was going to happen. Isaac also predicted that by the sword, Esau's descendants would live. Esau's descendants were the Edomites. They lived in a less fertile area than Israelites did. They were also almost always at war. Here's a people group in that region that was almost always at war. The descendants of Esau. Isaac trusted God for the future. That trust, or you could use the word faith, led Isaac to being recognized by God for his faith. 
here in the hall of faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, there's some debate in uh, whether it's staff uh, or if it's table or if it's head. There's, there's a little debate about that, those words there. It doesn't change what be, the context of what's being talked about here. We need to recognize here that in the mind of ancient Near East society, the blessing of a father to his sons was of great significance. Jacob took Joseph's two sons, elevated them from grandsons to sons, and made them equal with the other brothers. So Joseph was kind of removed from the picture because of his position now in Egypt, but his sons were elevated from being grandsons to being sons, co-heirs with the other brothers. In Genesis uh, 48, we see that Jacob blessed the younger over the older son of Joseph. That's what we know happened to the tribes as well. Jacob trusted God for the future and God's plan for the future knowing that God's plan did not fit with our own norms and sensibilities. Joseph said, look, remember, remember the incident where, where uh, Isaac is, is going to bless them? I'm sorry, Jacob is going to bless them? And he crosses his hands. No, Dad, this way. No, this way. Remember that? That's how, that's how the, the blessing fell to the younger rather than the older. And we see that play out in how those tribes grew and developed Manasseh becoming the largest tribe in Israel. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This verse, I think, shows the faith that Joseph, Joseph led his life with. All of his life he was trusting God, but this demonstrates he's trusting him into the future. He'd been sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, but still rose to be the number two in Egypt, saving the entire ancient Near East from famine. He was used by God to save the Egyptians and Jacob's family. He then ruled Egypt for many years. Now, after a long life of trusting God for the future, he looked forward toward God keeping his promises and for the Hebrews to leave Egypt to enter the promised land. Of course, we know that happened 400 years later. Joseph never stopped believing God would do what he had said he would do. In prison, in the pit, or on the throne in Egypt, his faith was constant. It was consistent, like ours should be. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, obviously this is not Moses' faith. When you first read this, you think, well, that's the faith of Moses. No, he's a little kid. He's got dirty diapers. He's not thinking about faith. It was the faith of his mom and dad, who were willing to go against the edict of, of Pharaoh to kill all the little boys so that the Hebrews don't continue to grow in strength. Moms, do you think you could take your kid, your three-month-old kid, and put it in a, in a uh, 
in a basket and send it floating down the Nile? What do they have in the Nile? They have crocodiles. They have flesh-eating fishes. Do you want to put your kid down that? No. But by faith, they did. The crocodiles were something fierce because they were worshipped in Egypt. So they were everywhere. Protect the baby by sending a baby as an appetizer. That just doesn't seem to be coherent, right? That took faith from Moses' parents. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We'll come back to that. That's an important point to remember. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I think Moses is a fantastic character in the Old Testament. He, he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. If you're not seeing in your mind right now, Charlton Heston talking to Yul Brenner, you have never watched the Ten Commandments. Because I can't think of Moses talking to Pharaoh without seeing the bald Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston talking to, uh, to Pharaoh. With all the benefits of the royal family in Egypt, Moses sided with the Hebrews rather than a life of luxury. Let's zero in on verse 25 for a moment. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's an interesting question that's posed here. Moses chose to be mistreated with the Hebrews rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What's the sin that's being referred to here? What, what's, what's being talked about here? Mike, Brian, turn on the mic. They can just sit there. That's fine. He was raised Egyptian, so they had all their multiple gods. Okay. With the Hebrews worshiping one true God, then they would be doing other things with the multiple gods. Okay, good. Was it a sin that he was where he was? In, in Pharaoh's house? No, that was by God's design, right? Yeah, I admit I found this difficult to answer. God had orchestrated Moses to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he grew up in a royal household. So it wasn't a sin that he was there. We get a, a hint about this in uh, Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7. When he was 40 years old, it came to, into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Stephen tells us that when Moses was 40, it came into his heart, this is uh, verse 23 of Acts 7, it came into his heart to visit his brothers the Hebrews. What does that mean? It means that Moses was led by the Holy Spirit to go down to where, the, where his, his kinsmen were and get to know his ethnic people. A failure to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Think about 
Think about what the Holy Spirit was directing him to do. Here he is, by all rights and, and the way the Pharaoh's royal family worked, he was number two in the land. Very likely in line to be Pharaoh. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you go down there and you start hanging out with your people. You start hanging out with your people because I have things I want you to do for them. A failure to do that, I think, would be rejecting the direction of the Holy Spirit. A failure to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit is sin. Moses gave up royalty to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about sacrifice for a moment. Did he sacrifice at the age of 40? Did he sacrifice for the, for the Hebrews? Yeah. And then he fled because he killed somebody. He had to leave. And then he spends another 40 years in Midian with Jethro and Jethro's girls. And he has a whole new life. And then God says to him again, go to your people and lead them out. I'm sure there was no better place in, uh, in all of Egypt to live than in Pharaoh's house, right? You had everything. You were the pinnacle of success. But Moses gave that up to follow God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let me just say as clear as I can, Moses was not thinking about Jesus. Moses had no concept of Jesus. I don't think even Moses even had a concept of Messiah at this point. So when you read in Hebrews that he, was, he, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, we have to understand what's being said here. The author of the book of Hebrews is using a phrase in the time, in, in the, the verbiage of the Hebrews of that day, not of Moses' day, but of the early church, to say that he would, uh, something they could relate to because they themselves were suffering because of their trust in God and his plan. Remember, the Hebrews were rejected by the rest of Israel. They were rejected by the, their families. They were rejected by Rome. They were rejected by everybody. They were enemies of everybody. They were... They were convicts or, or um, um, illegal people in the face of everybody around them. And that was the reproach of Christ. So the author of the book of Hebrews says, Moses was willing to suffer for God just like you are suffering for God. There is no connotation that Moses was thinking of Jesus. Moses was thinking of trusting God and doing what God told him to do. In Hebrews 13, 13, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The author of the book of Hebrews will, will talk about to the Hebrews the reproach that they have because they are trusting God. By following Jesus and his plan, the Hebrews suffered. And he uses verbiage that gives them a connection to Moses. The author uses the same verbiage to speak of Moses and the suffering he endured because he was following God's plan. 
The greatest achievement of Moses was leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and into the promised land. In order to accomplish this, the Lord led Moses through ten plagues, culminating in the Passover. He walked, or he talked about the, we talked about this last Wednesday evening. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God would demonstrate his power and his sovereignty. He had to, he had to have a, a Pharaoh not willing to give up too soon so that his true sovereignty could be demonstrated. And through the process of the plagues, God tore down the gods of Egypt to demonstrate that he alone is standing at the end. He alone is God. He did this through Moses, who had to trust God and to do what he was told. It didn't come without any fear or apprehension. I'm sure Moses was fearful. I'm sure he was apprehensive. He tells us this about going before Pharaoh. But ultimately, Moses was fully obedient. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Like Dell was talking about in, the, in Sunday school. That is really the understatement of the year, isn't it? By faith, they went across the, the Red Sea on dry ground. Can you imagine just walking... I, I, you know, I have the vision, the way it's described, the, the water stacked up on either side. So as they're walking on dry ground, was it like going to, a, uh, to the Atlanta Aquarium? Were there whales and dolphins and sharks peeking out like that? Could you, could you see that? What, what could they see? You know, it rains here a lot. Is the ground ever really dry quickly after that? No, it takes a while, right? Especially when you got dirt and mud and stuff like that across. It doesn't dry like right now. But they had wagons. What's the bottom of the ocean typically like? Sin and silt and, and whale poop and all that kind of stuff. But they went across on dry ground. Like Dell says, it's an understatement. There's no doubt it took some serious faith to watch God open the Red Sea and then start across the bottom of the sea. I suspect they were seeing some things they'd never seen before. They were seeing whales and sharks and fish. That would have been cool. But it would have been frightening! They would then get to the other side and the Egyptians said, if you can do it, I can do it better. It's almost like like the captain of the Egyptians said, here, hold my beer. And off he goes. And what happens? Whew. The whales and sharks were eaten. The, the Egyptians. They watched as the Egyptian forces drowned in the same area they had just walked through. But then they turned around and convinced Aaron to build the golden calf as they waited for Moses to return. We see this pattern over and over again as the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness. As I thought about this position taken here in Hebrews, not to mention the failures, I came to a conclusion. My faith failures hurt God. But he doesn't remain focused on them. Faith failures are sins that God chooses not to throw back in my face. The same thing he did for the Egyptians, I'm sorry, the Hebrews that left Egypt. 
They failed over and over and over again. And God still maintained His promise. It's almost like God forgets them, right? Of course, we know He can't forget because that's not knowing something He's all-knowing, so He doesn't forget. He chooses not to remember. That's what's going on here in Hebrews. God is focusing on the faith successes and not the faith failures. Joshua led the conquest of Jericho, and what did they do next? They failed at Ai. They, they had such a mighty victory, they forgot all about faith in God, and they, they, were, they were now the mighty warriors. We can do this. And they lost. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish when those who were disobedient, with those who were disobedient, because she had given them Friend, she had given them a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab had to trust the spies that she protected. That trust was ultimately in Jehovah God, who did protect her. And miraculously, she found her way into the family tree of David and then Jesus the Messiah. The author of the book of Hebrews then mentions several other members of the Hall of Faith together for brevity. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom... The world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. So we could spend, we could just do an entire message out of those few verses. The list of faithful in these verses comes primarily from the period of the judges and the early United Monarchy. Each of these men trusted God when it really made a difference in what would happen. They trusted God when it was critical. They weren't perfect men. None of them were perfect men. In fact, it is the exact opposite. These were mostly bad guys. When you look at the judges, and ladies, I think you're getting ready to do judges soon. Uh, as you go through the judges, focus on who those guys are. Because they're bad guys. There's very little redeeming value in all the judges. But God used them. They trusted God when it was critical, and God used them. Samuel was a link from the judges to the monarchy, and David is the model of the monarchy. But remember, David was also a murderer and an adulterer, and some would even say a rapist. My point in bringing up the failures is that our failures don't prevent us from being used by God to accomplish His goals. Every one of these faithful servants was a moral sinner, was a mortal sinner. with all the shortcomings involved of being a mortal sinner. Yet God used every one of them to further his mission. He used them so mightily, they're mentioned in the hall of faith. 
God wants to use each one of us as well. The author of the book of Hebrews describes some of the struggles these servants went through. Being faithful does not mean you have no struggles. In fact, it means the opposite. It guarantees that you will have struggles. Jesus told us that. You know, I think those struggles are what makes it more a matter of faith in God. If everything was easy in depending on God, is that true faith? Despite our sins and our struggles, God uses us to do His will. The fact that we can do what He wants us to do illustrates how God works in us and through us. And all these, through, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not, or they should not be made perfect. These are some complex verses at the end of the Hall of Faith. God used all of these servants to accomplish his will. They trusted God and they were obedient to him, especially when it counted. But none of them received the blessing promises before their deaths. None of them saw all that God had promised. That's not a failure on God's part, but it's really a demonstration of their faith. God didn't promise that these individuals would receive the benefits of the plan. God promised Abraham that a large group of people would come from Isaac and Jacob. But he died before that could be a reality. He promised Abraham that through his people all the world would be blessed. That was a promise with yet a future fulfillment. Not every promise made to you is about you. I'm sorry, I know that hurts. But every promise God makes is not about you. Sometimes it's about God and his will. Now look at verse 40 again. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The author talked, talked up all of these heroes of the faith and then paused to remind them that nothing could happen without what brought the church. Nothing about what they did has any impact apart from what the church does and what brought about the church. What brings about the church? We, we saw this not too long ago. The new covenant. All of these promises hinge on the new covenant. Notice that the author says, apart from us. This doesn't mean that somehow we contribute something to their salvation. It means that together, the church, that is us, and the Old Testament saints <coughs> will reach the ultimate goal of God's plan, and that's eternity with him. What the author of the book of Hebrews is doing here for the Hebrews that in church, he's showing them, look, you're tied together. You're inextricably linked to those Old Testament saints. We are all together as we get to eternity. Well, the way God dealt with the world in the Old Testament, the age of law, was different from the way he does in the age of grace, the church age. The end result is the same, eternity with him. We've all received the same faith from the same God. 
which results in the same destination, the new heaven and the new earth for eternity. Chapter 11 is a very well-known chapter in the book of Hebrews and perhaps the entire New Testament. Wake up, Chuck! He told me to tell him that. He told me to tell him that. I did. Chapter 11 is is really well-known. We discovered that faith in God and His plan is the reality of what we can't see. We can't see all of God's plan. We know a little. God's revealed some of it to us in His Word, but we don't see it all. We don't see how we get there. It reflects our confidence in God and His true existence. Our faith in God also provides us rewards that we, have, we may have to wait to receive. We stand in good company with the people who have trusted God before us. A few of those have been presented in this chapter. We also saw that none of these men or women were perfect, just like us. But God still used them to accomplish his plan. So the question is, what is God asking you to do? What are you keeping in the way of God's plan for you? What's keeping you from completing God's plan for you? We each have to recognize who God is and that trusting Him and His plan is the only way we can get through life. Despite all the struggles that go on around us. And like the Hebrew church, even potential martyrdom. Don't allow the sins that are so enticing to us keep you from following God and His plan. Don't be content to live in the royal household when God calls you to be with your people. Even when you can't see how God's plan will work, you need to trust us. Trust it. Abraham was willing to cut the throat of his son, the son of promise, knowing that God would do something, possibly resurrect him, or somehow otherwise bring Isaac through this. Moses gave up his royalty in order to follow God. What's God asking us to do? Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us to be your children. Father, we love you. We want to be obedient to you and trust you for for the future. We want to do what you've called us to do now. We want to do what you have told us is your plan. Even when we can't see how it works out, we just need to trust you. So thank you, Father. We, we want to be obedient. We want to trust. We want to be faithful. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.